our podcast, How Therapy Works, a non-denominational guide to psychotherapy for new and experienced therapists. We're here to help you understand what's going on in your sessions and what to do next. This is a standalone podcast as well as a chapter-by-chapter companion guide to Dr. Smith's book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide. I'm Dr. Jeffrey Smith. That's Jeffrey with an E-R-Y. I'm a psychiatrist and associate professor of psychiatry at New York Medical College, and we're here to relieve some of your anxiety about being a therapist. And I'm Amelie Southwood, a mental health counselor in private practice, experiencing a moderate amount of anxiety about being a therapist. Today, we're going to introduce you to a few of the most helpful concepts to clarify the work we do. This podcast is a companion to chapter five in the book. So, Dr. Smith, Chapter 5 is titled, How Affects Are Healed, which is a very interesting title. And you say that, or rather you write, that this chapter is about how the dread can be taken out of emotions to the point that the avoidance pattern is no longer needed. In uh, our last podcast, we uh, looked in depth at the avoidance patterns that people can adopt. And now looking at how we can render them useless is is of extreme interest to me. Um, You say, when emotions enter consciousness, carrying their full charge of visceral energy and effective grip, and this takes place in a context of safety and empathic connection, then something remarkable happens. Our clients are transformed. Can you tell us more about that, please? Absolutely. So, So this is something that we see in a great deal of detail when people have situations that have been traumatic to them and they're, they're dreading the recall of the experience. But since, since we've already identified that all of those patterns, all of those dysfunctional patterns that bring people to therapy are at their core uh, are based on avoiding uncomfortable feelings then when the avoidance pattern, when the method for avoiding a feeling is, is taken away or is let go, then inevitably there's going to be emotion that comes up. So in, many, in, in pretty much every circumstance where therapy makes some progress, we have emotion and those emotions are, are always the ones that were uncomfortable enough for the person to spend a good deal of energy getting away from and so therefore those are those are significant emotions that need to be healed so so this healing of emotion is a a a extremely central part of psychotherapy we're always doing it we're either helping somebody let go of an avoidance mechanism so that they can feel or we're helping them deal with the feeling itself so in this chapter we're we're talking about how do you help somebody transform an, an affect, a raw emotion, uh, to where it no longer has its, its painful grip. So you begin the chapter uh, with an explanation of breaking the chain, which is a, a, a quick look into the biological uh, mechanisms that we are actually affecting in, uh, in therapy. And I was wondering, Psychology is seems to be the one science that uh, purports to to work with an organ, the brain, a very complex one, uh, but we never really take a look at it. 
and we know very little about it. Uh, we apply these theories that turn out to be effective, but we don't really know why. Could you give us a quick uh, overview of how we break the chain of dysfunction from a biological perspective? So before we get into that, I, I, a couple of thoughts come to mind. One is that what you described, the fact that we don't really know what's actually happening deep down when, when feelings are transformed, when affects are transformed, well, that's why there are so many different schools of psychotherapy. Because the problem in psychotherapy is sort of like in the Middle Ages of science, where nobody really knew, had a clue how it worked, so one person's guess was as good as another. And, and uh, each one, each school kind of grew up with its own set of guesses, and they were completely incompatible with one another. And we still have that today. So one of the things that's of, of greatest interest to me, and really the basis of this book, is that we don't need to do that, because now we're at a point where we actually can begin to have a grasp on what's going on all the way from words spoken in a session all the way down to changes in synapses, which is where the action is. So we'll get to how synapses change and how, how that does connect with our words, but I think before we do it, it would be a good idea to have maybe a clinical example just to frame what, what we're looking at. Oh, I have one handy. Okay. So um, I'm working with a uh, young woman, and I will name her Susan. She uh, was in a car accident a couple of years ago with her parents. They were T-boned, broadsided, and uh, her mother was um, very injured. Her father not so much, but uh, his wounds were superficial and gruesome looking. And uh, my client's uh, tibia protruded through the skin. She was in the back seat, and they had quite a while to wait before EMTs uh, arrived. In these last two years, she will not get in a car anymore. And so do you have a sense of why she won't get in a car? Um, she does not trust other drivers. Her mother uh, respected the code of the road, um, was a very uh, good defensive driver, but it was a teenager who broadsided them. And, uh, and so as a result, she is just too afraid that other people are texting while driving uh, or otherwise distracted or simply bad drivers. And she's afraid that if she gets in a car, she will die. Right, so, so she has a, a very healthy kind of, of dread of getting into the same kind of situation again. And yet, since this was a, a rare sort of instance that most of us go through life without ever ever encountering, she would do better not to protect herself that way. Her instinctive self-protection is, is working against her at this point and she can't function in life. So or what we can do is to help her detoxify the, the feelings that, that, she's, uh, that she's running from, the feelings that were encapsulated in that moment when, when all of this uh, happened, and maybe especially the feeling of helplessness, of, of having something happen when you have no control, no ability to do anything about it, other than maybe to avoid the situation entirely. Okay, so in helping her with this, then what's really going to need to happen is 
there are two different pathways by which this sort of dread can be healed. And what's interesting about that is they both require the same things. They both require that the feeling come alive within the session as an affect. When I say affect, what I mean is a feeling that you can identify like, like terror or whatever it is with all of those visceral sensations, the hair standing on end, the heart beating fast, because those are the signals that tell us that there's an activation of those neurons in the, in the amygdala, in the very core of the brain, in the limbic system, the emotional part of the brain, uh, that, are, that are activated. Because change can't take place until those neurons are activated. If they're quiet, then nothing's, nothing's going to change. And that's when we say therapy is, is, is taking place on an intellectual level and we know that nothing's really happening that's going to last because those core emotional neurons are not active. And by the way, let me just mention that that's the part of the brain that in humans and monkeys and, and uh, cows and mice is very, very much the same. It's very similar across different mammalian species, and, and parts of it even go, go earlier than, than mammals, and we share those with, with birds and things like that. So, so this is a deep down fundamental, basic emotional equipment that we have, and that emotional equipment, those emotions are used to tag situations that might be dangerous. And so our instinctive brain is all wired up to make sure that those things never happen again. So two pathways, I said, and both of them require activation of those, those deep down emotional parts of the brain. And the way we know those deep down parts are activated is because we can see and we can feel in the office that the person is experiencing a real genuine feeling. How close have you been able with your patient to get to those actual affective experience that she went through during the accident and, and the aftermath? Oh, very close. Um, I have seen in her both fight and flight uh, reactions uh, to hypothetical situations that she would uh, um, actively argue against. For instance, being with new friends who want to go from point A to point B by car and her doing everything she possibly can to avoid that situation. So that would be flight. Right. And uh, at other times she's brought up instances when she had to get in the car and she became very angry and therefore refused to get in the car. And so then that was the fight. And when she brought those examples into the room, I saw the anger and I asked her to go beyond the anger and what is underneath it. And there we discovered the sheer terror. Uh -huh. So yes, we, can, we, can, we have explored this, uh -huh. but she still won't get in anybody's car. Okay. Do you think that, that the intensity of the, of the uh, of the affect, of the terror part of it. Do you think that diminished some by, having, by coming out within your session? It, it did, but at this point um, she becomes irrational when she is exposed to the real yeah. 
uh, stimulus, which she okay. cons con you know considers to be very threatening. Okay, it's interesting. It, it immediately gets really, really complex. But we're going to focus on the on the part that happened when she actually felt some of the terror in as she was sitting with you, and 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 some of the detoxification, some of the healing took place at that at that point. Mm -hmm. So let me talk about these these two healing mechanisms. So the first one is what exposure therapists think they're doing. They, they, they think they're, they're uh, exposing the person, let's say it's a soldier or somebody in this kind of situation, repeatedly over and over, session after session, exposing them to their feelings of terror. And that's, that's pretty, pretty arduous. But let's say it's done under good conditions and the person does actually feel all of those feelings, then there's a, there's a second requirement. And, and this is also the requirement for both of these two pathways, but I'm talking about the first pathway now. So the second requirement is that there has to be a context of safety. And that's what we try to create within the office, within the, in the therapeutic relationship, is a sense that things really aren't as dangerous as, as they felt. And that's a little difficult for your patient because just being safe in the office doesn't mean you're safe in your car. Exactly. So, so we're not quite there. But in any case, you have to have a renewed sense of safety that she's going to deep down come to a realization, and I'm saying not a cognitive realization, but a gut realization, that, that life is not as dangerous as she thinks it is. So, so there has to be Activation of affect, and, there, and the second requirement is there has to be what we call corrective information, a real, a, an understanding on a very deep level, on an experiential level, that things are not as bad as they, as they seem. So we'll, we'll work on that as, as we go, but those are the two requirements. So exposure therapists think that, that if they keep on repeatedly bringing up those feelings in a context of safety. They don't talk about the context of safety, but they do it. And then healing is gonna take place, and that's true. But the way the healing happens is the cerebral cortex, the thinking part of the brain, realizes cognitively that yes, it's not so dangerous, you're not, gonna, you're not likely to get T-boned again in your car, it's extremely unlikely, and it's, it's so unlikely that it's not a good idea to stay out of the car, and then that cortex is going to send inhibitory signals deep down into the emotional part of the brain that's going to say, hey, it's okay, all clear, turn off the alarm signals, you don't have to, you don't have to trigger all those avoidance mechanisms, it's okay to get in the car and it's going to be okay to, um, to take a drive. And so then we've achieved extinction. That's right, and that's called extinction. And, and the people who, who are promoting this will insist that that is the mechanism of what they're doing. But the main, the characteristic that's distinctive about extinction is that it's not permanent. Right. And if you look on, on the, one of those functional MRI um, studies, the amygdala, which is the sort of uh, danger detector in your brain, still lights up when she might think of a car accident, it's still going to light up because the amygdala is still signaling terror, 
but nothing happens because, because the reaction to the terror has been eliminated by these inhibitory signals from the cortex. So it does work, but what happens is if, this, if the safety goes away, let's say she got in a, in a minor fender bender uh, later on, then all of that terror would be very likely to come right back and she'd be maybe not quite back where she started, but, but it would be pretty, pretty bad for her. So exposure therapy then really has a, kind of a superficial effect. Well, it, it, exposure therapy would be fairly superficial in that way and not permanent and require going back for a refresher course from time to time, except that that's not all that's going on. What else is going on? There's actually more. So in, in about the year 2000, um, uh, Nader and, and some colleagues discovered something new. They discovered that, that, um, that under certain circumstances, the wiring that makes a certain situation feel dangerous can get erased. The neural networks can get That's erased. That's right. So there's so what happens? There's this neural network in the amygdala that says danger, 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 and that is connected to the memory of the car accident. So the car accident, because it's connected to these danger signals, it's sort of like when the when your burglar alarm in the house is activated then all it takes is somebody opening the front door and bah, the alarm goes off. So what turns out to be possible, and they called it reconsolidation because normally memories are reinforced when you come to the same situation again. But in this case, in therapy, we're talking about the opposite. We're talking about going back to the original situation, that is remembering it, and changing the meaning of it. It's the same thing as, as putting in the code for the burglar alarm and disconnecting the burglar alarm from the front door. So now you can open the front door and the burglar alarm doesn't, doesn't go off. And the person can think about a car accident and the amygdala doesn't light up. So how does that happen? Well, it has the same two requirements. Requirement one is that the emotional circuits have to be activated that's, those are the ones down in the amygdala, and the way we know they're activated is because the person is freaking out in front of us. Right. And second, it has to be in a context of, of uh, safety and relative comfort, and that's what we use the relationship to create. In the case of reconsolidation, when the memory is activated, when those conditions are met, then for a period of a few hours afterwards, those synapses that make those networks a network are able to change. They're able to absorb new corrective information. And so that's why when the, when the situation in the office is safe, the person's going to walk out with a degree less of, of this sense of danger and terror. We've undone that. Let me just say quickly the connection between synapses and neural networks. So Neural networks are just groups of neurons that fire together, and whenever that club of neurons has a meeting, then we recall that particular aspect of that particular situation. And there might be different aspects with her. One of them might be the helplessness. 
One of them might be the physical pain. One of them might be the noise. Or it might be the vision of her dad's face. Right. You know, each one of those is a different facet, and they may each require recall and healing separately for the for the whole job to to be done. But each one of those is is represented in the brain by a group, a club of neural neurons that fire together. Well, why does that club tend to go off together? It's because they have cozy connections at the level of the synapses that join them up together. So nerve cells have lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of connections with other nerve cells. And when those connections are strengthened, then when one nerve cell goes off, the others around it that are in that network tend to go off also. So when they all fire as a group, that's a memory. That's a piece of information. And in this case, we have two pieces of information. One is the aspect of the, of the automobile accident that's, that's recalled. And the other one is this alarm set system, this group of neurons in the amygdala in a certain place that have the meaning of danger. And if there's no connection between them, then no danger. Just like when the burglar alarm is turned off, then opening the front door has no dangerous meaning. When the burglar alarm is turned on, then opening the front door means something bad. So how do you explain then this window of opportunity for uh uh, for reconsolidation to occur. You write that, that it lasts, or the window is open, anywhere from 10 minutes to three hours. W what's going on in the brain then? I mean, is, are, is it because of question of elasticity, because our client has experienced this very negative affect that in a way now's the time to, to strike while the metal is hot, so to speak? Well, somehow the, the, the way the brain is constructed and now, um, Neuro, uh, neurophysiologists have figured this out down to the level of specific proteins and how they interact and exactly the chemistry of it. And the chemistry is clearly different from that other, that extinction that we talked about where there's, where there's inhibition. So I'm not going to go into the specific biochemistry of it, but basically those synapses, at, once, once they're activated in, as you've gone into a memory again, then the synapses become plastic, they become open to receiving new information. Mm -hmm. And they can be reprogrammed at that during that time. After about mm, five or six hours, then, then the ability to get reprogrammed disappears and they consolidate whatever information was present at that time. So it's like you get a second chance and most of the time that second chance in a, imagine an animal, imagine a deer that's crossing a road and had a close call with a car that's going to reconsolidate the fear memory. And so now it's going to really be scared when it sees a car. But in this case, we're trying to do the opposite again. So what's, what's amazing about reconsolidation is that it's permanent. You know this ex instinctively. We've all experienced this, that when you sit with a patient and they have that kind of experience where the terror becomes alive in the room and there is this feeling of, being almost in two places at once. They're reliving the experience and they're there with you and in a context of safety and some comfort. You know that when they walk out the door, they're, going to, they're not going to be the same person. That, that the dread that they had is not going to be the same as it was. Hence, they are transformed. They are transformed. And I'll tell you a, a quick story about that. In 1893, Freud heard about a case 
that was treated by his, his mentor and colleague, Breuer. And Breuer talked about how memories came up with their affect. And after that, the hysterical symptoms, which were the avoidance mechanisms of the 1890s, went away. And they were really quite amazed. And Freud tried it himself, and it worked. So Freud's initial experience, what, what taught him that therapy was something that could actually be useful to people, was working with people who'd been traumatized and using this mechanism of reconsolidation. And what Freud noticed at the time was that, that it was permanent. So this was all described in the 1890s, and it wasn't until the year 2000 that it became clear what exactly was going on and why it was permanent. Right, and Breuer called this catharsis. Um, you mentioned that um, the older a fear memory is, the more strongly it has to be activated for reconsolidation to work. Yes, so there's been a little bit of controversy, but maybe a lot of controversy because people get very heated up by these things, about whether what goes on in actual therapy is extinction or is it reconsolidation. And the argument against reconsolidation is that, well, the memory in other mammals, it has to be brought up in a very intense way for this reconsolidation to take place. And the way it happened with Freud was very intense because his patients had dissociated. And dissociation is a mechanism by which a memory can get completely outside of consciousness. And so it just sits there, not recalled, fresh as it could as the day it was laid down in the first place and so when it is recalled it's with a great deal of intensity and specificity it hasn't been touched it's sort of like an egyptian tomb that's never been opened before and all of a sudden you find all of the all of the things there that were that were placed there 3000 years ago and i've had that same experience and i think in many cases with trauma there's probably a mix of some extinction and some reconsolidation. But when you have dissociation and, and a memory has been completely untouched for years and years and years and it comes back, that's when we see the pure case of reconsolidation. One of the problems that I have encountered in working with uh, my clients who uh, have suffered uh, traumatic events is the time constraint of the session. You know, we open up uh, the, the very uh, raw emotions, we bring them to the surface, and the last thing I want to do is say, oh, session's over, time to go. What, how, what do you have to say about that? Well, the, the, the first time I really got to observe this reconsolidation was with the patient who had been terribly, terribly traumatized early in her life, and we spent four tough years peeling away layers of avoidance before she felt safe enough to, for these traumatic memories to come to consciousness. And, and so it was a lot of work. And when that finally happened, it was in a couple of sessions. And during those two sessions, the, the terror completely disappeared. It, they, were, they were still remained a dull ache, an uncomfortable memory, but the, all of the terror was gone. However, those two sessions were about three hours each. I just, you know, I knew something was going on that was important. I happened to be able to, to spend the time. I wasn't constrained, and so I could just follow the process and, and out to the point where 
she felt better, but we were both completely exhausted. And, and so that was unusual and remarkable. And I think it's a fact that the 45 minute or the 50 minute session is really kind of the minimum because it takes a while to get to settle in and to feel safe enough. So now you're already 20 minutes into your session and then you can do the hard work and then you need some time to settle at the end. And if you don't, then patients are very much on edge and they're liable to, in the last 10 minutes, if you say something wrong or something even slightly is upsetting, then all that sense of fear and danger will come back and all your good work goes to, to nothing. So what can I say? That's one of the good things about EMDR is it sort of encapsulates this process into very small chunks. And you can sort of put away each chunk and just deal with a few of them. So sometimes you do want to find a way to make extra time. Sometimes you just accept that, that you're going to do a little, a little chunk at a time. And, and that's the best that you can do. But I, I agree that that's a real constraint. Right. So I pay close attention to the clock. And if I see that my client is really activated, I will five minutes before the end of the session wrap it up mm -hmm. and kind of take them through a guided meditation to help them mm -hmm. settle back down and, and regain a sense of um, groundedness. Yeah. Yeah. Pride guilt and shame. Okay, well, so let's go back to to Jack, the case that we talked about in, in one of the very first podcasts. So Jack is the guy who at work has a, has a panic attack, and we sort of know when he comes in the first time that he had the panic attack because he got a promotion to a, a new level of responsibility in his job, and his wife is pregnant, he's going to have a baby, and, and he's freaking out about the responsibility. But the problem for Jack is that because he grew up kind of deprived, he learned very early in life to put a high value on independence, on being able to handle everything all by himself with no help. And that's why he has the panic attack, because, because when he has all these things, he, these new responsibilities, he doesn't have the ability to lean on anybody else and, and seek some support in managing this, this difficult situation. But the problem for us as therapists is that we'd like to say, well, Jack, okay, look, what's going on is you're really terrified about this responsi these responsibilities you're gonna get. How would Jack react if, if we ask him to acknowledge that he's terrified about these new responsibilities? Oh, he would deny it instantly. Right. Wouldn't he? Yeah. That would, that would assault his pride. That's right, because he has a value system in him that says that needing somebody else is shameful and bad, and, and you shouldn't ever be caught in that position. Well, that's why he's got this problem. So we have here, as we indicated earlier, we have two layers of entrenched dysfunctional patterns. One layer for Jack is, is this shame about having any kind of need or dependence and then the next layer on top is the panic attack, which is, is a way of reacting that gets him away from actually, you know, thinking about, I'm going to die, I'm going to have a heart attack, gets him away from the actual fear that's knocking on the door and, and, and is about to overwhelm him, except that he has, has the panic attack and 
he's able to distract himself with all of this concern about his heart and so on. And there could be a secondary gain to that also in that by having the panic attack and being afraid of his, you know, for his cardiac health, he can get some kind of attention. Attention and it gets him out of the out of the scary situation. That's right. Right. So in in working with Jack, then immediately we're confronted with the second layer. We can't get to the first layer that we want to, the layer of just being afraid of responsibility, because because this value system is is blocking, it's standing in the way. And so actually what we can do with Jack is we're just going to have to get him support whether he likes it or not without him really having to acknowledge that he needed it or that it feels good. So we'll get him some support by by having having sessions and and talking about himself and what's going on and and maybe some relief at work where where maybe he has to slow down on taking up the new job or something like that. And that'll calm things down a little bit. And then that gives us time to begin to work on this value system. But what I'll say is that that changing people's value systems is not the same as healing their painful emotions. And and it's a long, hard job because value systems, and we'll get into it, we have a whole chapter on that later on, value systems are very resistant to change for good reasons. When you can imagine that if every time you wanted to override your conscience, that was easy to do, and your conscience would just say, oh, okay, that's all right. If you want to enough, then, then, we, then stealing is going to be all right. So in order to function, conscience has to be resistant to change, and, and so that's a whole different aspect. So that's by way of saying that healing emotions is not the only change process in psychotherapy, it's, and there, there are other ones that may be very important and are difficult. And in your example of the, the car accident, there's another layer with her, which is avoidance of getting in a car. That is an EDP. That is an entrenched dysfunctional pattern. Right. That's, that's the one she came in with, right? Yes. And so that's constantly limiting her exposure to these affects because as she, she stays away from cars, so then she doesn't have to feel the terror. And so the terror doesn't heal. And that's the problem that you're up against with in working with her is how to help her feel safe enough about getting in a car that she would be willing to contemplate that and, and in doing so would then get in touch with the terror again until the terror begins to really heal and is no longer so scary. There's the old saying about getting back on the horse. Mm -hmm. And she's one who doesn't want to get back on the horse. Well, if you don't get back on the horse, you're not going to go through the emotion, through the affect, and it's not going to heal. So, so getting back in the car is probably an essential part of her ultimately being successful in therapy. So then how are you going to help her justify getting back in the car? Because she thinks immediately, well, yes, I might have an accident, and that would just be unthinkable. So you're going to have to do one of two things. Either help her get to the point where she could imagine that having an accident is not the end of the world, and that avoiding cars just in, in order to never have an accident isn't worth it. It's better to have an accident here and there, because the chances of it being a terrible one like the one she had 
are, are, are very unlikely and the amount of life that you miss out on isn't worth it. So you'd have to get her to the point where she can say, you know what, I'm willing to take that risk. Just like we all do when we get in an airplane, we take a risk that the plane is going to be one of the one in a million that goes down. Or I can think of another possibility, which is kind of helping her take on a different view of the world. That the world is a place that is actually pretty nice and God or fate or the universe is most of the time watching out for you and you might as well place yourself in the hands of some power greater than yourself that will be responsible for, for those parts of your safety that you can't control and help her take on a sort of philosophical view of life that would make her willing to let go and let whatever happened happen. Those are the, the two thoughts I can have about you know helping her get back in the car but essentially and and that is essentially creating this context of safety it's a mental safety it's a safety of saying I could have a car accident but I'm probably going to come out okay or saying you know the world is really a more benign place than than I think and helping her build up the kind of denial that most of us go through life with we all think you know I'm not going to have an accident this trip I'm going to be okay today I'll be around tomorrow we tell ourselves that even though it may not be true Right. I think she's a great candidate for EMDR also, which is uh, very effective in uh, helping a client not generalize one discrete event, right? So the accident would be the discrete event, and she has generalized it to all cars, and getting in any car is uh, flirting with death, if not just heading straight into it. That's a, that's a very good point. I think that people do tend to kind of lump their whole terrifying experience together as, as a, and, and then avoid the whole thing without actually realizing that it has so many facets. And in, in EMDR, you bring up one, you allow one aspect of it to come up at a time. EMDR, desensitization and reprocessing. Right. And you can look it up if you're, if you're not familiar with this, but it's a technique that allows affect to come into the room and then we have the person talk about what comes into their mind and, and that reinforces the safety and, it, and the specificity of each aspect of this, of this thing that's happened. And so it's a way of creating kind of a mini catharsis for each part of an experience and unpacking the experience a little bit at a time, doing it in a very controlled way, which is very, very reassuring and helps a person feel like they're not going to be overwhelmed. So as we, as we finish up this, this podcast, what I really want everybody to be aware of is the centrality of detoxifying painful, uncomfortable, overwhelming emotions and that there's two pathways, there's, there's extinction and there's reconsolidation, and they both have the same two requirements, activating affects and doing so in a context of safety. They're different, but they, it's very hard clinically to tell which one is operating or what balance between the two might be going on. And again, from the point of view of a therapist, those requirements are things that, we, that we're always trying to do to help people 
experience their affects and to make sure that they're doing that in a context of, of safety and connection. And human connection is probably the, the biggest element in, in creating a, a sense of safety, em empathy, and connection. And so that to me is kind of the core activity that, that concerns us most in therapy. And besides that, we might be helping somebody to let go of, of some mechanism that keeps them away from their feelings, or we might be working with them to, to help them modify some unhealthy value system. And that, in a nutshell, is pretty much what we're doing. So I think that this concludes today's podcast. And um, I will thank our audience for listening to the end. And uh, we hope it's been helpful to you. Uh, we'd love you to visit Dr. Smith's website, www.howtherapyworks.com, where you can purchase the book, Psychotherapy, A Practical Guide, and find other articles for clients and therapists. Dr. Smith, would you like to add anything? Just to uh, wish everybody a great day and say goodbye until next time. Goodbye, everybody.